Hi, and welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Carrie. I'm Emma. I'm Dean. And Typhoid Dean over there hey. is going to talk for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try. What are you talking about, Dean? Something from American history, a very strange thing that never should have happened in American history, but did. We'll start in the early 1950s. What was the zeitgeist in the United States in the 19 in the early 50s? What was the feeling? Cold War. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The Cold War was in the 50s. Oh sure. Started. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. It's going strong. Mm. Anti-communism. Yes. Paranoia too. I would argue. In the early 1950s, a lot of Americans were really paranoid that the communists were winning. They, you know, taken over China. They were fighting the U.S. to a standstill in the Korean War after kind mm-hmm. of a give and take at the beginning there. The war they, nobody would know about if it wasn't for MASH. That's true. That's true. <laughs> no one would know about it. The just This relentless horde was of communists were going to have seen a sweep over the country. And if the West and America let us guard down even a little bit, it was over. The mm-hmm. bad guys were going to win. And there was almost, it's almost like they were, we were ready to inflate their power. We thought they, were, they had capabilities that they really didn't have. We also thought they would stoop to any means, no matter how vile. And we in the, the dem- democracies in the West, oh, they wouldn't do that. Huh. <laughs> he, he. So in the early part of the decade, the Korean War was raging. And at this time, some intelligence officials in the United States thought that they saw signs of this new communist capability, a new power that they had, mind control. Mm. There were reports that began to trickle in that the communists were able to turn American prisoners of war against their country. There were other examples, too, that the Soviets were able to do this in some people in Eastern Europe, and you know, some former anti-communist people were suddenly pro-Russian and things like that. And so Amer- Americans saw signs that, okay, they must have something. They have something. We don't know what it is, but it allows them, it gives them the power to turn people's minds into mush or at least to control their minds. Or mm-hmm. This is, I think, when the idea of brainwashing really became kind of a thing, kind of a scary thing. I don't, I'm sure there was, you know, some sense of it before this, but this is when it really kind of had its heyday, I think. Yeah, because there were lots of movies of where Boris Karloff dangling a, yeah. Watch fob in yeah. front of somebody's face. Like hypnosis. <laughs> yes, that's different though. That's different than like this idea where you torture some, somebody for a long time and you suddenly and you literally turn them, change their personality completely and turn them the 180 degrees yeah. from how they mm-hmm. thought beforehand. I, I, I'm sure there's the sense of it before this, but it really became like, oh my God, they're actually doing it. It's real. They're doing it to, and including some American POWs in, in Korea. At the very least, they thought, oh, well, they have something that could induce our soldiers to elicit information, to get more information than they otherwise would. Something they're doing to their brain, some capability, perhaps even some chemical or something like that, that allowed them yeah. to do that. Newspapers at the time had headlines like, quote, new evil seen in brainwashing, and quote, brainwashing versus Western psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Well, it's a battle headline. Yeah, it is. It's a war. You're you're talking about this like it was all silly notions, but didn't we? Oh have, no, we had some sort of real intelligence telling us that they were trying to do this, right? There were a very tiny number, of, it turns out, American soldiers who would stay in Korea, but well, we'll get into it later on. But and okay. they thought the only way that this is true, the only way that these Americans are not jumping to come back to America is yeah. mind control. Exactly. Some form of, again, or at least the ability to change what's going on. Was there anyone going ahead. like, guys, maybe they're just not super patriotic. <laughs> I don't know if there's a chemical <laughs> happening. Um, <laughs> Probably. Yeah. But in this time, like any time, when, when people are scared, mm-hmm. you, you're not, you're less rational. Yeah. The country as a whole was scared. Its leaders were scared at this time. Yeah. So very rational. And, and people making rational arguments like that, especially rational arguments that go against, oh, you're weak on communism kind of a thing. You, you, there was no space to make those kinds of arguments. Mm. This is all this is the, the time where the Russians had, in fact, spied their way into the nuclear arms club. It's largely given that the, the Russians had, I think they had an H-bomb in 1949, I want to say. 
And it's almost certain that they wouldn't have had it nearly so quickly without their spine. So there was this, you know, the, the communists were doing some things effectively mm -hmm. yeah. at this time. So dangerous world is getting more and more dangerous all the time. And now if the communists had this means of either gathering information or changing people, people's mind, you know, it, it was almost like a new arms race. We need to compete with that. That was the notion, I guess. It would, we would be increasingly disadvantaged in the Cold War if we didn't have the same capabilities that they had. So there was suddenly this incredible need to, to sort of catch up in this mm. regard. And the CIA specifically. So the CIA with the Central Intelligence Agency was the now after the World War II, they were called the OSS. They were centralized literally and became the dominant intelligence agency in the U.S. There's others. I mean, the Defense Department has its own. The Navy has its own. The Army has its own, et cetera. But the CIA was considered to be the central clearinghouse for intelligence information and national security in foreign countries, not on, on U.S. soil. Right. And the head of the CIA's counterintelligence, that is trying to find out, you know, spies and people, things like and capabilities of, of, of the, the other side, was a guy named James Jesus Angleton. Jesus? Yes. Not Jesus? Uh, he was not <laughs> Hispanic or Latino, so I'm going to say he pronounced it Jesus. Really? I, I think so. He was Jesus. for sure not. That's, <laughs> was, that's actually amazing. Yeah. A very ballsy middle name. Anyway, he was a, he was this, this, literally unbalanced extremist who was convinced that the U.S. federal government was full of moles, full of communist sympathizers and spies. He saw spies on every rock. He was he was probably insane. Wow. wow. And he was the head of CIA counterintelligence that's, at this that's time. Scary. That's so scary. Very scary. <laughs> are, where are the psych evaluations? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Whoa. They were missing. And and now so now if 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 they could brainwash Americans you know it's like the communists who had assets all over the place it's like they could strike at any time if they could be an American who knew in the upper echelons or yeah. even uh, you know president or something like that who might be a, a Russian Manchurian candidate kind of a thing it was a tremendous amount of paranoia I can't overstate that hmm. so so see my fears as a small child were not also unfounded. What was your favorite? It's not your mom was a spy. <laughs> mom was a Russian spy. Well, she may have actually been a Russian spy character. Just because you never possible. found out. Yeah. She may still be a sleeper cell of one. <laughs> waiting for that command to come forward. So the idea is we need to beat them for their own game. The U.S. We need to learn to control minds. Or the, least, the very least to get information if we're going to compete with the, the commies. And, uh, and and even also thwart their Manchurian candidates, maybe, you know, counter-program those kinds of people. In April of 1953, Alan Dulles, who had very only recently been appointed as the new director of the CIA under President Eisenhower, new President Eisenhower, he became absolutely convinced we need to do something. We need to start a major program that was intended to look into things like mind control and things like a truth serum. So... He wanted to convince others. He wanted to get the elite behind him. This is a time, CIA, people forget, the CIA and this precursor of the OSS was a, a playground of little, um, truly East Coast elite, Ivy Leaguer mm -hmm. types. People say the liberal elite. That could not be further than the truth. It's the yeah. moneyed elite. These were bankers and financiers. They were very, mostly very conservative who came from Harvard and Yale and Princeton and places like that. They had old money. They, they, yeah, it was. They, they weren't, you know. They were a moneyed financial elite. They were not this intellectual elite by any stretch. <laughs> they, I mean, they. Th I'm sure they thought of themselves as that way, but uh, but they also thought of themselves as you know men of action and things like that. And they were mostly dumb and uh, vile and amoral. It wasn't like a bunch, just like a bunch of frat guys. But it was a bunch of rich, grown frat up, guys. and now given the powers of of the U.S. government. Yeah, it was it was not a good thing. Yes. That's why the CIA has had. Just a litany of failures, and I think you can trace it back to the fact that it wasn't – it was the furthest thing from a meritocracy. It was you got these gigs because you're part of that old boys club. It's infamous for that. It's, it's, there's still remnants of that, by the way, in it, but it's not as bad as it was in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. <laughs> and <laughs> early 2000s. And, and, and <laughs> so he – so Alan Dahl decided to give a speech. And where was he going to give this? Well, he was—he had a speech coming up at the Princeton University Alumni Club. <laughs> not kidding you. And he thought that was the right place to give this speech to to get to rally the, the important people to mm -hmm. his cause, which was we, we all have to be as paranoid as I am. 
And, and again, these were the people who dominated American intelligence and American government, so he wasn't completely wrong. He, so he sees this perfect opportunity to get the word out, and he does so. Just days before this, his speech, by the way, in April of 1953, the New York Times had indeed run a story about an American POW returning from Korea brainwashed, or even a, a handful of them that they returned from Korea and they're sort of parroting communist nonsense. And, and you know, they were declared brainwashed by the communist. Some of those American POWs had even confessed to participating in germ warfare while in Korea, which would have been a war crime. So they essentially accused the United States of committing war crimes in Korea. Yeah. Yeah. And they know oh, that's just okay. They've been brainwashed because that's, of course, nonsense. To this day, we don't know, but there have been lots of very well researched books who have said, Yes, indeed, we did commit war crimes in the sense that we did conduct germ warfare in, during the Korean War, right? Against the, the communists against the Chinese and the Korean. Well, forces. and who wouldn't believe that? I know, I mean, anyone would now, yeah, it would not be shocking in the slightest. No, and like I said, the jury on it is legitimately out, it's not for sure mm -hmm. we did, we probably did. <laughs> Uh, but it's not it's not a certainty at the time, though. They thought, well, that's crazy. So these people who are saying this, these American soldiers who said, no, I, I did it mm -hmm. at the command right. of my commanders must have been unduly influenced. They were right. brainwashed. So are, are all the actual official records still classified? Either classified or destroyed. Oh. oh, That happens a lot more than you think. Well, no, I, I know We'll talk about the, during this. Um, <laughs> at a certain point. Aren't things unclassified after? Yes, supposedly. Not always. After, Stuff, I don't know how many years yeah. is it? 70? But if it's really, really embarrassing, do you really think? I mean, yeah. not to be conspiracy theorists, but if something's really awful, if something said, yeah, yeah and that's what Nixon ordered the execution of Kennedy, are you going to ever see that in print? Oh, it's been 100 years. <laughs> Let's tell everyone. No. No. Yeah, so. I suppose not. I think I'm thinking of the census records. <laughs> <laughs> Very different thing. That they make public after I think seven no, years make, or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. No, you do declassify things after X number of years. <laughs> right. In fact, some some um, the JFK stuff some JFK was, stuff yes. was just recently declassified. It's, yeah, yeah, sure, it happens. But, but that was on the order of the president or something, right? Like it wasn't. It wasn't like a matter of sometimes there's a timeline. Like yeah, you know, we'll do this in sixty years or something. Yeah, like that. I think the podcasters have just been asking really nicely. For the document, so they released him. Is that why podcasters? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> All right. We have a lot of power. <laughs> the true so. crime podcasters are like, guys, I need more content. <laughs> that is one thing, though, in, in criminal things where they where the police can can keep records sealed for you know, 15 years, 20 years, because yeah. it's an it's open case. It's not an open yeah. case. It's not an ongoing investigation. You sucked. Yeah. You didn't solve it. Let other people help. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> Pisses me off. I, I, I mean, I, I get keeping tidbits you know like oh yeah. it, there was um, some tell that they could so you can winnow out the false confessions i totally get that but otherwise i think those things should be public yeah even if they maybe even change some names and things like that to, to protect truly you know innocent people mm -hmm. fine extract black out that name but otherwise give the facts out there anyway dulles went into this princeton speech and he went he came out swinging he says quote in the past few years we have become accustomed i'm not going to do a dulles accent by the way <laughs> In the past few years, we have become accustomed to hearing much about the battle of men's minds, the war of ideologies. I wonder, however, whether we clearly perceive the magnitude of the problem, whether we realize how sinister the battle for men's minds has become in Soviet hands. We might call it, in its new form, brain warfare. Oh, fun. <laughs> I think he thought that was going to catch on. Uh, it did yeah. not. Uh, yeah. But that's a very cool phrase, you have to admit. Dulles was he, was, he was careful to say how awful this, quote, Soviet brain perversion techniques were, but he said they're working. So he said they're, they're terrible people. They're doing these, these, you know, wrong things, but they're working. So we have to get at it ourselves. And, you know, you just had to listen to those handful of those turned American POWs to, to, to make his case. And some, again, even refusing to come home, by the way. Yeah. And that happened in Vietnam too later. That's happened in, in wow. more than people think. It's very, very rare, but it does happen. It's not it shocking. No. I mean, it's a little bit of, of I don't I know Stockholm syndrome turns out it's probably not true, but right. there's some kind of variation on something going on like that. We start to Or you're just completely disillusioned with your country. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who you thought always does the right thing. And you're always on yeah. the right side. And, and you find out that's not true. And this is the time where most people thought it was true. This yes. is the early 50s. And and, and, and your own life was on the line. Yeah. And 
you realize how, you know, shit gets serious. So right? those for those Americans, if indeed it did happen and there were American soldiers who did conduct germ warfare, again, at the, at the behest of their yeah. commanders, I mean, that would be very jarring. Yeah. I thought yeah. we're not supposed to do this. Yeah. The uh, And then and, what do they do? They're torn, right? They, yeah. Yeah. Although I'm sure, I mean... It's not like North Korea had much to offer, so I mean, no, that's I a, that to me yeah. that's that's unusual. That's weird. No, I mean torn torn between doing what your commander tells you and torn yes. between doing what you know is right. I think yeah. it, I think the ones who stayed over, I mean, the ones who stay over in places like that. I mean, yeah, America has its its warts, but it's better than North Korea or North Vietnam. I mean, yeah. So I mean, there's some I mean, psychology but, going on there for those well, folks. Well, definitely. Oh, Gary and Nancy. And she nodded her head viciously. <laughs> Very aggressively. So Dulles said that, oh, God, like we're handcuffed. We're in the West. We're handcuffed by our ethics. And we can't <laughs> use these abhorrent <laughs> techniques. But he also Are made it clear lying? how dangerous they were and how effective they were. Wink, so, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He then promptly ratcheted up U.S. efforts to perfect mind control with a new initiative that would come to be called eventually MK Ultra. <laughs> That is the topic of our discussion. What does MK stand for? I'll tell you in a little bit. Okay. Far from innocent, the U.S. had, of course, already been experimenting with chemicals and things like hypnosis and other techniques in an attempt to sort of catch up in this brain war. An initial program called Project Bluebird had, in, I think it was started in the very, very early 50s, maybe in the late 40s, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but it had been supplanted by Project Artichoke <laughs> in August of 1951, or as some people on who annoy Carrie and I would say 19 and 51, because it doesn't make sense to say any year like that. No, 1951. That's even worse. That's yes. the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So annoying. Who's people who say 2012, it's 2004, it's just stop saying that. It's a podcast thing. I it's don't not get just it. a podcast thing, but. We notice that on podcasts. Yeah. We listen to podcasts. People say it all the time. Listen, and you'll see her people say that all the wow. time. Wow. I'm going to start listening. Project Artichoke was housed within the CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence, OSI. Hmm. Artichoke endeavored to find out if someone could be made to involuntarily do something awful, like the obvious, which is assassinate a foreign target. Right. So literally, they were looking into something like a Manchurian Candidate. In case you don't know, I've said that a couple of times now. The Manchurian Candidate was a movie with Frank Sinatra, by the way, a younger, skinnier Frank Sinatra. Was the idea was that the communists were able to brainwash some American uh, and into assassinating the president, even against his will, without him, you know, just sort of triggering him to do so. And it was we, like Sirhan Sirhan, like Sirhan Sirhan, the legend, <laughs> I mean, was joking. true. So there was a memo dated January 1952 that asked, quote, can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? That's what they were trying to do with Archip. Yeah, that's just weird. Why do they need to go through all of that? Assassins exist. Yeah. Well, for Killers the reason exist. they do, but think I, about it, it, think about the Manchurian candidate. They had someone who was close to the president. He was what was he again? He was like the rich friend, the, the son of, of a rich friend, or something like that. So you'd have to get someone to assassinate the leader of Russia. Let's say you'd have to make someone close to that leader do it. Think about trying to assassinate Putin right now. He is infamously well. well yeah. you know, you'd have to get someone very very close with his inner in circle or access to that inner circle to do so. And you're not going to find people willingly doing that. And again, they'd certainly be killed. So th this idea, actually, as a means to that end, doesn't not make sense. Yeah. It's a double negative, but it made sense. I don't know. I think we have means of assassination now. Well, of course. That it could be done. I'm not I'm not advocating it. it sure sounds like this. Doesn't I it don't like think Carrie, it should be done. Uh, doesn't sound like Carrie is pro-assassination. So. I'm glad that it's not being yes. done. That's your, your, you know. Carrie, you're backtracking here, but uh, we heard you the first time. <laughs> So they thought, okay, maybe we can find someone of, quote, weaker intelligence and who could take out evil officials, even, by the way, in this memo, the illusion was to even Americans, by the way. It was really? just a memo. And what do you mean? Even this, killing Americans? Even killing Americans. Wow. According to at least one CIA memo, there was a mention of, you know, rogue American officials or something like that. Oh. That could be taken out by this, this real-life Manchurian candidate. The work on this, on Project Artichoke, was done mainly overseas. It was in Europe, Japan, Southeast Asia, and the Philippines. The subjects 
were, for the most part, natives of those places. They weren't Americans, not yet. Mm. The CIA's big brains, they tried hypnosis, but it was a long way from making someone, you know, cackle like a chicken <laughs> to making them go out and, and take out a foreign leader. So that didn't really hurt. That didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> they should have tried. Who was it we knew? We, uh, they, we, I've been to a couple of those stupid, you know, nightclub hypnosis shows. And the one we went to, we had a friend of ours was, he was told he was a stripper, I think. And he started like taking his shirt off and, you know, dancing for the crowd and stuff like that under this hypnosis. I don't, I don't know. Oh, was it um, Kathy's boyfriend? Yes, it was. Yeah. I used to go to a summer like weekend leadership thing. And there was entertainment like one night there was like a dance entertainment and they would bring a hypnosis guy and he had been doing this leadership camp for like 20 years. He would come all the time and do it and the kids would do it. It was, you know, silly, whatever, but it was always a little creepy and kind of weird. And one summer, I think it was like the last, the last summer I did it, a young, you know, teenage girl, like 15 or 16 went up and, you know, got hypnotized, blah, blah, blah. And was like dancing all you know, sexual, and he like totally egged it on and let her stay wow. up. And then other stuff ended up happening that I won't share okay. later that night. He Not got fired. Fine. Well, yeah, good. Fired. You, should, you should never have a middle aged man hypnotizing a teenage girl. Yes. It was so, we were all sitting in the audience, like, well, somebody stop this, please. It went on for so long. Nobody stopped it. Let's see where this goes. Hold on. <laughs> no one stepped in and he got fired. <laughs> wow. I told her to cackle like a chicken. This is her. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> he never came back, and he'd been doing it for twenty years with them. I'm I'm not sad he never came back. <laughs> so they tried getting a subject addicted to morphine as a means to do this, and then they withdraw the morphine. It's like, hey, when they hit, go kill. Some, would you go kill someone? <laughs> I don't they tried cocaine. They tried weed. They tried peyote. They tried mescaline. This is all again all project project artichoke. Though soon there would come along a chemical that would give them renewed hope. At the time, nothing seemed to work. So this idea that Dulles had was that more needed to be done. This was when Dulles came up with this new endeavor in April of 1953. Artichoke had been going on. Bluebird had been going on. Nothing was working. The stage had been set. He thought the U.S. has been just kind of dabbling to now. Let's go whole hog. We need better experts for one thing. We need more imaginative thinking. So... They decided let's kill artichoke and replace it with something much more comprehensive. So it's three days after that speech that uh, Dulles did at the Princeton alumni, he approved of MK Ultra, and you know so much for being the good guys yeah. um, mm -hmm. in this 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 brain war and not doing things that the uh, bad guys would do. Okay, so Dulles thought, okay, I'm just doing what needs to be done, but I need someone to do it. I need a chemical. I need a biological smart guy. He needs, I need great science there. We, we, we haven't had the right people in place. So he thought, I need to go get me a sorcerer. Someone who's kind of be called the black sorcerer. You can't really tell the story of MKUltra without including its biological mastermind, a man named Sidney Gottlieb. The Scandrel podcast actually recently did, it, recently did an episode on Sidney Gottlieb. It's, it's a podcast that looks at awful people in history, mm -hmm. and this, this, this is it was a good one. He fits the bill for sure. He was kind of the deus ex machina behind all of the horrible things that NKUltra would eventually do over the next decade or so that the program lasted. So let's just, before we go on with NKUltra, let's get to know this particular monster <laughs> named Sidney Gottlieb. He's born in 1918. Whoa, he's old. He, I, I he really was this, this he, he would look like you would think of as that stereotypical harmless scientist kind of guy. Really? But he, I mean, he was just, he, he did horrific things. He was the child of Hungarian Jews who settled in New York and they raised him in the Bronx. He was painfully uncomfortable in school and, and as a young person because he had a club foot. Oh, so he limped. He walked with a limp, and he also, at times, had a severe stutter. Yeah. So, and, and even in, and, and late in life, much, much, much later in life, he'd go back to school and earn a master's degree in speech therapy at San Jose State University in, in California to control his stutter. Wow, there's 
easier ways. <laughs> <laughs> he was a born academic. So, but after graduating from James Monroe High School in 1936, I happened to go to James Monroe Elementary School one year. Wow. <laughs> I remember that. One of the few elementaries I remember. I went to a lot of them. This was in 1936. He stayed home and he attended City College of New York for a little while. But this school didn't feed his true passion, which by this time was biology at this point. He loved, 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 loved biology. <laughs> loved it. So he, I guess he researched it, and he found out that University of Wisconsin had this great, these great advanced classes in agricultural biology that he really, really wanted to get into. But he didn't have, the, I guess, the background to get into it. So he went to Arkansas Tech. This is the weirdest part of the story, maybe. This guy from yeah. New York, from the Bronx, who wants to study biology, goes to Arkansas Tech to, to take background courses that would get him accepted into University of Wisconsin's top-notch program, which it did, and he was successful. I have no idea why Arkansas Tech had these courses. I guess agricultural biology. I guess right. they, they do a lot of, I think, pig farming, don't I've they? I've never heard of agricultural I, biology. I'm just biology that has to do with agriculture. Yeah. Animals, things like that. Yeah. Cows, pigs, goat, sheep. Farm Love animals, it. Gary. Farm animals. Farm animals, mm -hmm. you know? Uh -huh. Chicken, maybe? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. His thesis, by the way, at Wisconsin, that got him his degree, yeah. was, quote, studies of ascorbic acid in cow peas. That, that sounds fascinating. Cow peas? Cow peas. Peas. He studied it in the peas. I don't know why. Like the vegetable? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Strange. So he graduated in 1940 from Wisconsin. And this was, of course, not long before the United States entered World War II. He wanted to do his part. He was very eager to do what he could for his country and do everything he possibly could and help out. But he had this club foot, and he was this little skinny science nerd. Yeah. So he tried to enlist, but the club foot said, uh-uh. No, no, no. You're not going to work out. Go away, little science guy. <laughs> so he's not included in, um, he, he's not allowed to go to the war. I think he goes back to school or something, and he has this whirlwind romance with the daughter of a Presbyterian missionary named Margaret Moore, the daughter, not the missionary. <laughs> and they got married pretty quickly after oh. they met. But he still wanted to serve his country. So eventually they gravitated towards Washington, D.C., where Sidney thought he could get work with the government doing science stuff biology stuff and that would be his the way he contributed to the war wait what kind of degree did he get biology no but i mean he uh, went back to school cowpies oh i Plain don't know bachelor's degree or no, no. i think uh let's say master's i don't know okay okay probably not just i think it's master's ms yeah. let's go with that why not okay. sure probably phd i don't think so not that not yet anyway oh okay maybe Whatever. <laughs> you know, he was Dr. Gottlieb, so possibly. Or maybe I mean, he hadn't I just got it yet. You're not I qualified think he... to be a scientist with the bachelor's degree. Oh, I thought you talked I thought she was talking to me personally there for a second. You're not. Wow. I felt a little bit attacked. <laughs> so they moved into this little off the grid cabin outside Vienna, Virginia, and had two daughters. So this is weird. They were he was a weird dude. He really wanted to be he had these weird quirks. He was this nature guy. He would, the family had no electricity and no running water. In this cabin, Vienna, Virginia is now, I think, pretty much in the almost the center ring, I think, of the greater D.C. metropole. But at the time, it was out there. Mm. And, and he lived even out there outside of it in a cabin with no water, no electricity. He taught his daughters to like milk goats and things like that. Wow. And how so did he know how to milk goats I, from the Bronx. Agricultural I biology, guess. sister. <laughs> you milk I a lot of goats when you study in agricultural biology in the University of Wisconsin. OK, whatever. And I'm sure cows, too. And by the end of the 1940s, Gottlieb was found himself working for the CIA, which was something of an accomplishment because he wasn't from an Ivy League, as you know. He's from a, a great university. Yeah. But he wasn't, it was an Ivy League. Again, this was very much an old boys club. But there's a man named Ira Baldwin who kind of got him in to the University of Wisconsin program. He was this biological, he was a big, big, famous biologist at the time, nationally rec recognized at Wisconsin. He got him in and he became Gottlieb's mentor at Wisconsin. Baldwin had connections in DC. And so Baldwin recommended him to the CIA. He said, this is smart. This is one of my smartest students. And they hired him as a, a biologist. So he thought, okay, I'm contributing. It's after the war now, I believe it's after the war, but he still thinks I'm He's we all saw the cold war coming because this will be my role. I can help this way. Gottlieb, was at the National Research Council by 1948. And this kind of this started his journey in government. 
He was, quote, exposed to some interesting work concerning ergot alkaloids as vasoconstrictors and hallucinogens. Mm. It's a little precursor of what he's going to do in, in the not-too-distant future. Is so ergot the mold that makes people go crazy? Yes, crazy. And, and it's also the, essentially, it's how we get LSD. As well. oh. oh, okay. So Super it is a fun. famous, famous hallucinogen. It makes you do some nutty stuff. So he had a, it's, it's critical because he had a background in this exact kind of chemicals that later MKUltra would, would want to use. Right. So by 1951, I, I, I think I misspoke a minute ago. I think he actually entered the CIA in 51 after he was on the National Research Council for a short time working on vasoconstrictors and hallucinogens. Vasoconstrictors is blood, right? Yes. That's a, okay. Carrie was completely blank face there but emma <laughs> jumped in and yes. uh, answered he i hope i'm right <sighs> i think it's vasoconstrictors oh it could be vaso. okay vaso vaso uh, we'll, we'll go I, i'll take your word for it here vasoconstrictors <laughs> it's the last time i'm going to say that word so <laughs> that's fine baldwin yeah, baldwin had recommended gottlieb to deputy director alan dolls who as you know would later become the director and they had a relationship they knew each other and by this time, because Baldwin was working at the top secret lab at Fort Detrick in Maryland on biowarfare technologies. So again, there's other artichoke and ultra, those, those are never the only things going on in this regard, but MKUltra later became the main method of, of testing these kinds of chemical uh, warfare techniques. But there's other things happening. So Gottlieb gets to Fort Detrick at the time where America is searching for these brainwashing drugs. They're in full stream with Project Bluebird, as I mentioned a minute ago. And the program was already using drugs for, quote, special interrogation techniques to interrogate captured POWs from the Korean War. And uh, other people they had, uh, you know, in the, the Cold War they had captured. They did this at, at quote, unquote, black sites in places like Camp King and, and some, a place called uh, Villa Schuster in Germany and a, a Fort Clayton in the Panama Canal Zone. So see, they were careful to do these overseas. Right. These things that they, they knew full well were illegal and, and well, pretty Well, are we still doing that? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. So arguably, this was an extension and even a continuation of what the Japanese and the Nazi Germans had done during World War II. A lot of people have made this accusation that we, in fact, there is evidence that we did bring on, we, we for sure brought in Nazi scientists to help us in nuclear capacity. Yeah. Some people think that we brought on some Japanese scientists and, and, and even some Nazis to help us in this chemical biological mm. capacity. The Japanese had, had had their infamous Unit 731 during World War II, which experimented on prisoners of war, mm. American, Chinese, and others, Philippines, horrifically. And the Germans had used mescaline, for instance, on POWs at Dachau concentration camp near Munich during mm. World War II as well. So, you know, the argument has been made that what we were doing with Blue Butter and Artichoke and MKUltra was a continuation of what we fought against in World War II. Yeah. And again, the intent was to break down the prisoners, to render them pliable, and so they'd be open to you know, spilling everything they knew, to spilling their information. At the time, it was considered cutting-edge science. So Baldwin had recommended to Dulles that, okay, we really need to get some more scientific rigor we need some better scientists in this effort. My guy, Sidney Gottlieb, he's your guy. So Dulles named Sidney Gottlieb the head of a new unit called the Chemical Division of the Technical Services Staff. It's an Orwellian gem. Yeah. It sounds so innocent and scientific. Bluebird was at this point renamed Artichoke, and Gottlieb was recruited into Project Artichoke. And so I'm, I'm, I'm catching up with where we started with here by going through Sidney Gottlieb is what, what I'm doing here. So, right. And he became kind of a, a very powerful player within the intelligence community in, in the U.S. government. Sidney Gottlieb did. He used Bluebird and, and later MKUltra as his power basis. And he expanded his and he intensified his methods in his very, very noble quest to save the world. Again, he was really driven by... I had a club foot. I wasn't able to fight in the war. Yeah. I need to do something big for the country. This is what I'm doing. This is what I can do. This is my skill set. This is why he came to be called the black sorcerer. He was seen as this scientific genius, this mastermind of the chemical warfare that could help the United States win the Cold War. It is Sidney Gottlieb, by the way, who is seen as the key inspiration for the character of Martin Brenner, played by Matthew Modine in Stranger Things, the Netflix series. Oh. That's said to be based mainly on Sidney Gottlieb. Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, not, not surprising. Yeah, not surprising at all. But there is that idea. I think he does capture that character's ego and sense of righteousness that I think Gottlieb had. I think that, that Matthew Modine does, and also the lack of any self-reflection at how evil they become and the terrible things they are doing because mm-hmm. it's it's the ends completely justifies the means, and they really. He, he carries his sort of snick. Uh, so it looks like she's drinking some syrup there with a little little side drink over here, thinking she's off mic. No, Carrie, we all heard you. I slurp. pushed a straw down. I know it made noise. We I all heard you slurp your syrup. Trying to be considerate of podcast <laughs> okay. listeners. Okay. So that's Cindy Gottlieb. That's our mastermind. We'll hear more about him. But you're trying to paint him as a very sympathetic character. Uh, what now? How? He's really. Did I, because, did I did I not of, call him a monster? Because the club <laughs> I think more than, was it the club foot? <laughs> yeah, at the beginning and how he just wanted to I uh, no, do I think, his part to No, 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 no I don't mean that. I mean that that was his motivation for doing some what from any kind of distance at all would seem to someone else who has any kind of morals or consciousness consciousness who's awake. <laughs> um, they they would see what he does as Horrific, horrific things yeah. as unhuman and inhumane things. He doesn't see that. Part of why he doesn't see that is that he is driven by this need, thinking he really is saving the world. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm not trying. That's not. I don't okay. think it's sympathetic. There are all kinds of megalomaniacs out there who think they're doing the right thing. True. Wow. I, I took that personally. We should. We. But here's the thing. We sure do get a whole lot of people to go along with it. Oh I yeah. Mean, he wasn't doing it single handedly. Nope. It takes, it usually, I mean, if the top says, here's how we do things, most people in an organization, public or private, are going to follow along. Yeah. Most people aren't raise, aren't willing to raise their hand when it's the status quo and say, that's a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm, or I'm mm, especially with something like, um, I have moral qualms about that because then this, oh, pussy, you don't want to win the war? Communist, you know, and at that time. True. And other organizations, it's like, oh, you know, like some organization that's like, oh, yeah, we should totally sell these worthless mortgages to everybody and tell them they're gold-plated AAA mortgages, even though they're going to blow up in their face and everybody who invests in them is going to lose money. If you said, mm, that's awful and evil and it's fraud, and, if, and you were in the banking industry in the 2000s, you would have been seen as a pussy. <laughs> make, you gotta money. You gotta make money. You gotta wake up early. You gotta get to work. You gotta rise and grind. You gotta, you gotta make your money. That's what you would, you would have been ridiculed. Going back to out. science. Okay, sorry. <laughs> there the was at that time there in like um, experiments and stuff like that. There really wasn't very much thought in the way of ethics, right? Yeah. Scientific ethics. Not and, anything like it is today. Yeah, and even not like it like it will would have be not too far. After this, but in the early 1950s, nothing like there yeah. is today. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. It is pretty a wild, and, and and it wasn't like that's the weirdness about it. It was they didn't think of themselves as when they sterilized that person with Down syndrome, or when they gave those prisoners syphilis. Syphilis. <laughs> yeah, they didn't think they were doing evil things. I know, which is bizarre. Which is, I, that's just not how. You would think the the normal brain would work. Yeah. How on earth could you knowingly give someone a disease yeah. or take away their bodily autonomy and you know not think that was horrific? Because you come from a different direction. Right. You're coming from I'm going to do the, uh, I'm trying to cure a disease, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the method to do that, you, you think whatever can get me closer to curing this terrible, terrible disease is a good thing because the end of it is a good thing curing a terrible disease so you don't you get clouded by the methods to get there Mm -hmm. because you're coming from the direction of i'm curing a terrible disease so i can do this or that or this yeah i'm not i'm not defending it i'm saying i think that's the mentality and that's why it's easier of course down that slippery slope and uh, there are are plenty of people that would have that mentality today there's always and there always will be plenty of people have that mentality Yes. That's why you have to have institutions and rules that block that from happening. Because if you allow it, and if you're not regulated, you it will always happen. In any place, no one's above it. We did terrible, terrible things in wars, just like not probably as bad as the Japanese did in World War II, but we've done terrible things, and we're going to learn more about some terrible things we did here <laughs> in, in a not war situation. Carrie <laughs> seems um, yeah. just Carrie just seems gutted. <laughs> <laughs> I just yeah, I just don't understand. She just doesn't. Yeah. 
No, she doesn't get it. She, she doesn't get evil. <laughs> she doesn't. Mm-mm. I do. See, I, I guess that's my point. I shouldn't have said that. Because the evil it's people. Naughty. Yeah, this is naughty. These are mostly not evil yes. people doing yeah. these things for the most part. Um, I, I, Sidney Gottlieb would never have admitted he's evil. He no. was a mastermind of this, though. I would say he's evil. Yeah. He, he was but a mistress to not do these things. But And my point was ethical rules in scientific experimentation, et cetera, et cetera, did not exist at this time. However, well, there were I'd, basic I, things. You can't kill them, but correct. there were, well, actually but, that was But old. you can get them addicted to yes. any kind of drug and yes. you can, but, um. Or you can do terrible things to them that I, like there were control groups that weren't given a cure, things like that. Yeah. That. But I think even today when we're talking about CIA and clandestine, uh, inner dark government secret operations i like that phrase clandestine inner dark government secret operations i like they're that. not going to give a shit about what the ethical rules are for sure they're still they're not which is why you have violate to violate them you so. have to have rules in place that are enforced and enforceable yeah, well. to stop people from doing things they shouldn't be doing yeah. you always do you can't I'm do it sure. you can't you can never it's like it's like the idea of self-regulation this industry can regulate itself that's literally impossible it yeah. can't mm-hmm. happen yeah i'm not blaming the industry for doing that you, all industries all any walk of life is incapable of regulating itself to do things that are bad for anyone outside of that industry sector whatever you want to call it, it it's no such thing yeah so so stop trying to do it <laughs> It like uh, looking at you, the legal profession and the medical profession. So his early days for Gottlieb with Project Artichoke were very frustrating to him. He just he didn't think he was getting anywhere. The, the means, the methods weren't robust enough. He quickly realized that the drugs they were using for these enhanced interrogations didn't bring forth anything like the truth in all cases. In fact, sometimes they seem to do more harm than good. They seem to get in the way. They made the person being questioned unresponsive or incomprehensible because yeah so <laughs> i know in hindsight again like no shit but yeah yeah just get this guy high on shrooms and see what happens mm-hmm. so, um i'm seeing god in color is that what you want to hear <laughs> so more needed to be done he thought efforts needed to be enhanced enhanced integration somebody mm-hmm. the envelope needed to be pushed they needed more and different drugs Gottlieb argued, and they didn't have all that many foreign POWs or some people like that to test the, the more robust methods he wanted to use on. But he thought, I mean, there are lots of American citizens. Am I wrong, people? Yeah. So this is that first part of that slippery slope where I'm not, I'm not again, I'm not, do, we should not have been doing this to, <laughs> to people in, in the Philippines and things like that. But he was now saying, Mm, can't we just do these on Americans too and on Pretty American please. soil? And Dulles, who's now the CIA director with President Eisenhower in 1953, had Gottlieb's back completely. They were mm-hmm. very much on the same page here. Dulles gave Gottlieb all the rope he wanted, and eventually he gave him permission to use that rope to hang almost anyone he wanted. Gottlieb asked for total control over all CIA efforts and mind control, and he asked for the permission to test on Americans officially. Dulles said, go for it. Wow. Wow. These are some pretty bad people. They are. Ellen Dulles was a piece of shit. Have we ever had a CIA director that wasn't a piece Probably of shit? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. I think We've so. had people who are less pieces of shit, I think. I'm I would sure. say Ellen Dulles was a... Very much. Mega? A, a mega one? Shit. Yes, he was. Nice. This expanded effort would need a new, new name. We can't just call it Artichoke anymore. That's bullshit. So on <laughs> April 13th, 1953, was the birthday of MK Ultra. Now I'm going to get to Carrie's question from a while ago. Yes. The MK denoted that the program was under the auspices of the CIA's technical services staff. The TSS I mentioned ago. Yeah. That mm-hmm. MK meant, okay, the TSS is in charge of that program. It's under that rubric. Okay, that's that's all MK means. There's MK, lots okay, of different so MKs. It means nothing. It doesn't stand it, for it's, like it's, it's an initial government that says that tells me the person reading this memo that this program is under TSS. That's all that that's all it means. Okay. I thought it meant like some maritime kill maritime. squad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put that rumor out there that MK means maritime kill squad. Or as, kill as squad. Emma said, maritime kill squad for some reason she... I don't know. Maritime kill squad. I thought it was going to be like 
M stands for this word that starts with M and then nope. K. Nope. You nope. promised and did not deliver. I know. That was um, so we funny. still have Ultra. <laughs> okay. okay. Ultra was simply taken from World War II where things that were called um, Ultra, codenamed Ultra, just meant they're at the top level of security. That's all yeah. it meant. Oh, so it was, it was saying Ultra. MK for being a part of the TSS and Ultra was saying like, okay, this is top, top, top security. It was kind of an egotistical thing to name it actually. Yeah. yeah. I prefer Project Artichoke. <laughs> or Bluebird. <laughs> the goal of, of Artichoke had been to find essentially a truth serum, and this was the goal of MKUltra, too. Intelligence agencies have been searching for this kind of thing for a long time. In fact, there isn't any such thing. There still isn't to this day. Sodium pentothal has been called a truth serum, yeah, but it's really just a downer that makes people, it makes the victim, the user, kind of loopy and talkative. But there's no proof that it elicits truth. Yeah. That you're like mm-hmm. the idea is that oh, you're telling truth against your will. That's not true. Yeah, you maybe you're a little more talkative, so maybe you do. But you also just might talk about nothing. You might be that super annoying person at the party who's just talking bullshit. Just and no one cares. On and on and on. No and one on in that little circle cares. They're all trying to get away. They're all making eye contact with each other. The, the icon is like, if you fucking leave, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> Stay here with this. I mean, so that's what so sodium pentothal is not. A truth serum. There is no such thing. But a critical goal of MKUltra was to find this truth serum. So MKUltra was effectively kind of a bulked up and expanded and more free artichoke. And the CIA under Ultra could research how drugs could, quote, promote the intoxicating effects of alcohol, end quote, quote, render the induction of hypnosis easier, enhance the ability of individuals to withstand privation, torture, and coercion, and also they sought to produce amnesia, shock, and confusion. Those were literally written goals of MK Ultra. Yeah. All ways to break you down and they thought make you more controllable or more truthful. The goal was, quote, an incapacitating agent, an agent that would not harm permanently, but incapacitate temporarily. And they felt this was, quote, was a humanistic way to <laughs> rage a war. Humanistic. Humanistic. Sure. They're not gonna kill him. No. I mean, I guess I Compared to outright torture, sure, but maybe, maybe not, but maybe. <laughs> and in fact, as we'll learn, not. Stephen Kinzer is an American journalist and researcher. He traced Bluebird and Artichoke's origins back to those Japanese and Nazi efforts that I, I mentioned a minute ago. He wrote that Gottlieb felt that the key to mind control was to first, like a mind wipe. You want you need to erase the white. You need to start with a blank slate. You need like what's the word? Remember the, uh, on a disc, a floppy disc. What's the yeah, goddamn you're word? Yeah, the twenty-two-year-old. Carrie, what's the word? <laughs> reformat. Reformat. <laughs> Re, in the olden days, you had to reformat a disc. Even sometimes a hard drive, which is a very serious thing to do. But like you had a disc, <laughs> you had, you you'd reformat the disc, and that made it completely clean. You can put now your data on that. He thought of the human mind like that. Okay. So he needed to reformat the mind, and that would allow you to then control that mind. He thought. Or to even induce that mind to tell the truth. Kinzer wrote, quote, second, you had to find a way to insert a new mind into that resulting void. We didn't get too far on number two, but he, Gottlieb, did a lot of work on number one. So that was one of the main things he was doing. He was trying to wipe minds, basically. He was a mind wiper. Okay, and this is to control them, not to get secrets out of them. Both, really. Well, if you reformat their mind, you wipe out their secrets. That's true. So mainly to to control control minds, Yeah. yeah. An MK Ultra memo from 1955 that was eventually declassified, it stated that they were trying to perfect, quote, materials which will cause the victim to age faster or slower in maturity and substances which will promote illogical thinking and impulsiveness to the point where the recipient would be discredited in public. So it wasn't just the wipe part. They're also trying to create chemicals and processes that would ruin minds and make minds well think about like a a foreign agent or a foreign leader or something like that in fact we'll get to an episode where they did exactly where they were going to do exactly that to a very famous foreign leader we'll get to that later it was i uh, think i know what i think you know who it is too it was about (laughs) destroying the subject self even his subconscious and then replacing that with a new more compliant person and the path to this goal was drugs 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 yeah. This is how they're going to do it. This is how they're going to make these drugs, wipe a mind, <laughs> ruin a mind, was all about the drugs. The drugas. 
that's a good, what is that? Was that Albanian? Good word. That's just the word Cyber and I call drugs. Okay. So it's just you guys. All right. That's weird. <laughs> that's what we made up. Drugas. Drugas. Hey, Does anybody know what you mean by that? Oh my God. <laughs> it's our little code. What does that mean? <laughs> so, hey, come over. You want to do some drugas? <laughs> drugas. Yeah, that's what we say, totally. <laughs> Gottlieb and his henchmen working on the MK Ultra project within the CIA tested. As I kind of alluded to a while ago, they tested weed, THC. They'd use pure THC. Yeah. They did cocaine. They tested heroin. They tested mescaline. They dabbled in early MDMA ecstasy. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I didn't know it was around that I, long. I didn't. I thought that shit didn't pop up until the eighties. Same. Do you want to know a little MDMA research tidbit I found out recently? <sighs> Hell yeah, I do. <laughs> Try I and stop me from wanting to know that. I already told Emma this. What population of people do you think um, Dutch have been good in? Oh, sorry. Uh, being study subjects for MDMA. Oh, I'm gonna have to say in the U.S. Oh, in the U.S. Like, yeah. oh, like not a nationality, but a, correct. A, yeah, a sub, a, gr- a, sub a group of people. Um, study of MDMA. I'm gonna say, oh God, um, people who draw their eyebrows in after shaving their okay, actual eyebrows. That's a little yeah. weirdly specific. No, LDS. Mormons. Mormons. Really? Because MDMA is not on the banned substances list. <gasps> it's an oversight. Re- yeah. <laughs> we got Pepsi. We forgot MDMA. God damn, damn it. it. You can't have a cup of coffee when you wake up. <laughs> but but you, sure. 3.2% beer, but you can have some ecstasy all day long. Pop a pill. And I don't they're care. not on other substances that might mix reactions. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, even caffeine, right? So they're really good pure so subjects. Wait, Mormons are ravers? Is that well, what you're trying to tell for they, science, they yeah. participate oh, okay. in research studies. <laughs> <Yep>. Science raves, <laughs> raves. Science. I'm assuming. I'm talking about therapeutic use of MDMA. Oh, uh, okay. In this case, in this case, I'm assuming that in Fort Detrick, there these a bunch of amoral scientists were having these raves. After which <laughs> they had to murder that Dutch DJ. DJ they hired to bring yeah. in because he knew too much. Way too much. Saw them all making out, yeah. really sweaty. Doing some shit, <laughs> some crazy shit. We talked a lot about what we're doing here at MK Ultra. <laughs> DJ, vibe, I don't know, is that a thing? Honestly, MDMA might be a little bit more of a truth serum than like LSD or cocaine or something. Didn't work for them. They yeah, tried it back in the 1950s. They also used heroin, downers, methamphetamine, Wow. and magic mushrooms. Whoop, whoop. The I didn't even know all these things existed back oh, then. Yeah. They tried booze too, which seems really weird. It's yeah. like really alcohol. Okay, it's been tried for <laughs> millennia. <laughs> yeah, you don't think they would have figured that out mm-hmm. by now? They also invented a super hallucinogen called BZ. We'll talk about that in a minute, Ooh. but I've never heard of that, and I don't know where it is nowadays. Have you heard about BZ on the street? No. Okay. Well, it was supposed to be like more hallucinogenic than LSD. The strongest hallucinogen you can take these days is DMT. Well, also LSD. Is DMT is stronger than LSD. Really? Yeah. I don't know what it is. What's DMT? DMT is a chemical that is actually found in your brain. Really? Um, yeah. And it just, I don't think, it, it doesn't last nearly as long as LSD, but it, it it's more common you experience something called ego death. I've never heard of that. It doesn't sound fun. It's, I don't think it is. I couldn't, I will never ego do hallucinogens. Death. I did it once and I hated it. Wow. So ego death is like where you basically think you you die. You think really? you're dying. I think not just your ego. It's not like it's like super humble. Yeah, you get right. super chill. Oh my god! You like no, you know kind what? of like you, you do that better than I do. So it's actually a weird trend that like kind of rude frat boy straight guys will like do LSD once and then are like. Wow, I have empathy and like oh my God. I know that other people have feelings and my actions affect them. Like they now all of a sudden have feelings. What's this drug called? <laughs> LSD or oh. DMT? Or DMT? Or DMT? Let's send lots of it to every fraternity in <laughs> yeah. the country. DMT free. They should get free free <laughs> dabs. I, I doubt if it lasts their entire life. People lifetime. are vaping well, it in Canada. Okay, then I haven't do it like daily vaping <laughs> lsd in canada vaping dmt in canada. oh and it's actually pretty dangerous you shouldn't do it but don't do any hallucinogens I don't yeah know. frat boys okay frat boys actually do it so gottlieb is they're trying all these chemicals and soon though he realized they had this potential new wonder drug that at the time was little known and had not been around that long and it was called of course lsd, LSD. Lysergic acid, the 
Diethylamide. Is LSD, LSD comes from actually the way you say that in German. Because that would be LAD, but in German yeah. it's LSD. Its inventor was Albert Hoffman. He had synthesized LSD in 1938, but then he accidentally discovered his hallucinogenic qualities in 1943 when they think he absorbed some through his skin, and it may have been a lot because he tripped hard. I heard, I've heard really? this story. Yeah, he was like, like for a day or something like yeah. that, he was just tripping. Tripping wow. big. Luckily, he was not a lab. Although, if he left a Bunsen burner on, that could have been dangerous. Is this part? This might be a different story, but there was some story where a scientist was chemically making a hallucinogen or some a compound, mm-hmm. and he accidentally found out it was hallucinogenic. And he like rode his bike to and from work every day, mm. and he had to like call his wife and be like, "You have to come pick me up because <laughs> I'm tripping balls." He couldn't uh, ride his bike home. I don't know. I don't know if it's this. It may some, yeah. or somebody else, but that happened. At maybe some the guy point. who maybe the guy who discovered DM, DMT. I already forgot DMT. <laughs> DMT. I don't know. Maybe Hoffman fell in love with LSD. Huge super fan. Really? Super fan. Would it be for the rest of his life? He tested it on himself countless times. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it would revolutionize psychotherapeutics, and he thought it would, it would treat things like depression and ADHD. And he was not wrong. He was not wrong. Wow, he, he was also, ahead he, of his time. He was very ahead of his time. He thought it, it could treat schizophrenia, alcoholism, sexual perversion, and criminal tendencies. So he wasn't well, perfect, Yeah, but he did was he, onto something. Did it, he think it was going to like cure homosexuality or something? I, I, I think so. Probably. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he's Swiss. You know, <laughs> we are culturally conservative people. Really? Historically. They've, oh. A little bit. Yeah, a lot of, lot, of, lot of Catholics. So Gottlieb heard about LSD. He knew about LSD, and he... And he, and he uh, knew that he, or he had heard that it increased suggestibility in his users. So he thought, what the hell have I been leaving out LSD until now? Let's go get some more of that. LSD quickly became the center of his studies at MK Ultra, And it was not long before he could, realized that LSD could not just make the target more pliable. So that is to say something like a truth serum, he thought. It can make the target maybe controllable. So something, so kind of both his, his key goals. He thought LSD could be this mind-wiping drug that he'd been seeking for so long and also a mind-control drug. Agency officials noted that LSD could be used to, quote, gain control of bodies whether they were willing or not. So they really had this this hope that LSD was going to be this wonder drug from their sense anyway. Yeah. I don't know if that was like a pot of people situation they were talking about, you know, this gain control of bodies. But it was for sure it was kind of – they were really literally thinking of a maturing candidate-like of thing through yeah. LSD. We can put people on LSD and turn them into just robots that would do our bidding. Yeah, they're they're not as smart as they no, think they no, are, I don't no, think. No, 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 They also wanted to find out if LSD could help them induce, like, say, a Russians to defect or something like that and join the winning team. Yeah. So, again, more like <laughs> the brainwashing kind of a technique. So they had high hopes for it. So they had this green light – to dose American citizens at MK Ultra, Jesus. you had the leading American intelligence agency, CIA, doing it. Gottlieb and his minions then just started, they started dosing mostly volunteers, like college students were their first targets. They'd go to US <laughs> universities and they would. I bet you that know, wasn't hard to give volunteers. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> sure, let's do it, man. It's the early 50s, early now mid 50s at this time. They even dosed agents, intelligent agents. Like in the, the the office, hey Frank, do you want some coffee? <laughs> and, they, and suddenly oh he's tripping. Pupils get big. Yeah, <laughs> they had absolutely no problem using, and they and they it wasn't just LSD. They were doing it with other drugs. They were still studying as well. It was a while before they start doing it on people unknowing and unsuspecting like that. But they they would do that soon and and a lot as well. So this was America. Sorry about you. But this was America. So who do you pick on when you're trying to do? these bad things nerds not exactly especially not these days you pick on the powerless the marginalized the the, poor the the people at the fringe the poor criminals yeah people of color minorities so not only did they do this to college students but they started dosing patients in psychological institutions yeah i should have seen this coming prisoners (laughs) drug addicts and sex workers this all became sometimes voluntary sometimes involuntary subjects of their experiments. With surprising honesty, one CIA official said they experimented on, quote, people who could not fight back, end quote. That was very much the idea. Mm -hmm. Even terminal cancer patients were not 
beyond the pale of people they would do this to. I mean, that's, that's crazy to me. It's one thing you would give a drug addict the drug of, of their choice or something like that. Often it was heroin they'd give. You know, that yeah. person is taking that drug, but doing it to people in mental institutions and, pe- and, and even prisoners and patients and cancer patients. That's yeah. I, so, you know, they had really no boundaries whatsoever here. One mental patient in Kentucky was given LSD for 174 days consecutively. Oh, my God. Reportedly, a group of prisoners in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary were sent on acid trips most days for five months. That just fries your brain. A- absolutely. Yeah. It can't not. That... So again, they, boundaries were an issue for these people. Clearly. Yeah. I know of people that did a bunch of acid in high school, and they'll say today, I'm not the same. I yeah. di-, And they did it, you know, once a month, and we, they're like, I'm not the same. I, I knew someone, friend of a friend, who was, well, brother of a friend, who was completely, his brain was mush. Yeah. I mean, he, he literally couldn't take care of himself. I've, and it was because he did a, a, a humongous amount of I've acid met a, at one. I've met like one or two people who said they've, after one trip, like one trip only, I mean, I'm sure they did it multiple times, but one trip, they have never felt back to normal. That a part of them always kind of feels like they're tripping still. Oh. And it's like the worst thing ever. You feel. Yeah. I've never had a flashback. I know it's supposed to be a thing with acid, but I've, I've never had a, a flashback where you like oh. days or weeks later, you suddenly mm. start tripping again for a short I time. I did. I've heard some people like they worked out and like dislodged a little bit of drugs still in their really? fat or something. And they were at the mm. gym and they're like, <laughs> oh, I'm shit. tripping, man. I'm tripping. I, I did acid once and I absolutely hated it. I hated it. And I kept wanting to call mom. Because <laughs> I was like, okay, when is it too? When is this going on too long? Because as soon as it's going on too long, I'm gonna call my mom and tell her to come take the that emergency time, room. It had been 11 minutes. <laughs> probably, <laughs> we just thought it was 17 hours. Probably right? it had been like four minutes, and I was like, I should call my mom. It messes with time. Yeah, no question about it. Hmm. I the, didn't call my mom. So these were these marginal people, these these powerless people that they're picking on for the most part. Some of these people would actually go on to be famous. So the poet Allen Ginsberg. Oh, Very yeah. famous beat poet. He was given LSD at Stanford University there as part of this program. Yeah. And they, I guess they told him, okay, you can listen to anything you want while you're tripping. What's your choice? And he chose a spoken word album by Gertrude Stein, <laughs> a, a Tibetan mandala or mandala? Mandala, probably. Mandala, and some Richard Wagner, Wagner, some, nice. some Nazi compo- compositions. That's so horrible. he was, wow. you know, he was insufferable even then, apparently. <laughs> and one flew over the cuckoo's nest author Ken Kesey was also a volunteer. Oh. And so was the future Grateful Dead lyricist and musician named Robert Hunter. But then the list turns much worse when Ted Kaczynski, yeah. the Unabomber, oh, I kn- yeah. would go up to be a famous letter bomber who was brought to justice by his own brother. He was a volunteer while a sophomore at Harvard University. The experiment was said to be, quote, purposely brutalizing. Yeah, it's and, terrible. And I, so, I mean, I wonder, you know, he took part in ex- those experiments for a total of 200 hours. Wow. Yeah. So you wonder if that had any lasting effect. It had to. I um, think it did. Yeah, clearly. Also, the author of One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, that's mm. a pretty crazy But also, story. Ted Kaczynski was very young. Yeah. When he went to college, he, he was. Oh, was he? Because yeah. he was super Prodigies. smart. And yeah. He, yeah, he, he was, was like 16 or something. I don't yeah. know when, how old he was when he participated in the, the experiments, but he was probably younger, younger than the average college student. Yeah. That wasn't the last. Well, if you thought Ted was bad, how about Whitey Bulger or Bulger? How is that what I pronounce? The, the Boston mob Bul- Bulger, yeah. the mobster. He was, really? yeah, I didn't what? Know later mobster slash FBI asset. He was a, a, a low life criminal. He committed some federal yeah. crimes and he was in the federal penitentiary in Atlanta in 1957 when he took part oh, in wow. the experiments. He described, quote, a total loss of appetite, hallucinating. The room would change shape, hours of paranoia and feeling violent. We experienced horrible periods of living nightmares and even blood coming out of the walls. Guys turned into skeletons in front of me. I saw a camera change into the head of a dog. I felt like I was going insane. Wow. Wow. That doesn't sound like a good trip. Does not sound. He had a very bad trip. I think they they did some pretty heavy doses here. They were not. Yeah, I'm sure. Sirhan Sirhan's lawyer, Lawrence Teeter, 
claimed that his client had been, quote, operating under MK Ultra mind control techniques when he murdered the future next president, Robert Kennedy, in 1968. But that argument conveniently forgets that MK Ultra was not successful at creating a Manchurian candidate. Yeah. It was famously mm-hmm. not, and they didn't, it never successfully created, you know, these zombie type things. And so he knows, T- Lawrence Teeter knows that's nonsense, yeah. but then Lawrence Teeter is a defense lawyer, so he doesn't mind lying. <laughs> okay. Fellow murderer Charles Manson was also rumored to have taken drugs under the watchful eye of the MK Ultra program. Not sure, but good company. Sirhan, <laughs> Whitey Boulder, Charles Manson, Ted Kaczynski. It really turned out well. It wasn't just the CIA, by the way. They subbed it out, the work, to a variety of institutions all across the country, in fact, the continent. It included hospitals, research centers, universities. All these people took part in these CIA programs. And and a little bit in their defense, they usually use front organizations to do the the paymaster and and hire them to do these experiments. Most didn't know they're working for the CIA. If, I, th- I imagine though, if you're more, if you're pretty sophisticated, you know where that sudden a lot of money and resources are coming from. You, unless you're, I don't know, I don't know how what the tenor of the times was, but yeah. it seems like that would have known. In part to maintain the secrecy of the program, they dis- they really widely dispersed it. They just give little chunks here, little chunks there. 162 official MK Ultra experiments were conducted, and again, they spread them throughout the entire country. And a total of 185 researchers took part. So they're trying very hard not to have a handful of people do a lot of it. So they could kind of, there were a couple, but they're trying for the most part to have it really dispersed. People were just doing little bits and pieces of it. Hmm. Eventually, MKUltra scientists gave up on LSD, though. They said the effects were too unpredictable. It wasn't very effective. And I guess this is about the time they invented this BZ drug. Mm -hmm. But apparently a lot of researchers who were willing to use LSD in their experiments and other things too were not willing to use BZ. It was considered mm. too dangerous. And so a lot of the folks who were working at MKUltra with LSD and other drugs wouldn't do it with, with BZ. Huh. So, but you get the idea that this is this massive national effort, all these, you know, near, again, nearly 200 civilian researchers, countless support personnel, agency employees, hundreds of targets, tons of volunteers, many of them not knowing what's happening to them. It, it seems like, it doesn't seem like a secret program, does it? No. No, no I know. It, but it was. It was super secret. No one knew about NKUltra outside of top echelons of government intelligence agencies and you know the president or whatever and, and oversight committees. The CIA knew that the fallout of what they were doing, experimenting with these drugs, experimenting on Americans, experimenting on people involuntarily. They knew it was wrong. Even with the, the ethics of the time, they knew it was wrong. They knew it was dangerous. That's one of the reasons they kept it so secret. And uh, throughout his entire existence, the, in 1957, the CIA's inspector general wrote a secret memo that said, quote, precautions must be taken not only to protect operations from exposure to enemy forces, but also to conceal these activities from the American public in general. The knowledge that the agency is engaging in unethical and illicit activities would have serious repercussions in political and diplomatic circles and would be detrimental to the accomplishment of its mission. So they knew what they were doing was wrong. So in the next, in part two, we are going to cover first the highlights of just how wrong MKUltra could go. We've just hit the tip of the iceberg. We've talked about who was behind it, how it came apart, how it came to be, and the methods they were using. In part two, we're going to talk about like some just awful, awful things that happened due to MK Ultra, and then we're going to talk about the demise of MK Ultra when it was finally revealed and discovered, and what happened because of that. Wow, nice! So that would be part two of Project MK Ultra. Okay, can't okay. wait. Well, good. I'm glad. Excited. I'm glad you can't wait. <laughs> Thanks, Dean. Thank Absolutely. you. Thanks for listening, listeners. Bye. See ya.